Welcome to the Lead On Podcast. This is Jeff Orge, the president of Gateway Seminary, hosting you once again for a conversation about practical issues related to ministry leadership. This week at Gateway Seminary, we are hosting our annual missions conference, and that has me thinking about missions and missionaries and the role of both missions and missionaries in the life of our seminary and more particularly in the life of our churches. I've invited a guest to be on the podcast with me today. Dr. Don Dent is the Baker James Cawthon Professor of Missions here at Gateway Seminary. He's also the director of the David and Faith Kim School of Global Missions here at Gateway, and Don served for 30 years as an international missionary. He is uh, an expert in every way on the subject of missions and missionaries, and I'd like to talk with him today about that primarily for the purpose of motivating some of you to consider a life of commitment to missions and international missionary service, and then for many of you who won't make that commitment because God's simply not leading you that direction, to be more engaged with your church in the process of promoting missions and being involved in missions uh, through your church setting. So, Don, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. Don, we spend a lot of time here at Gateway talking about missions and missionaries, and Frankly, uh, we make the assumption that fully funded, full-time missionaries are still important as part of the mission strategy of God. So I know there are a lot of other competing uh, methods that are being put out there today, but why are we still training full-time, fully funded missionaries, and why do you think they are still the backbone of what needs to happen in missionary service around the world? Well, we can see historically and around the world today, and even research shows that the people who make the greatest breakthroughs cross-culturally are long-term people who are fluent in the language, spend most of their time with the local people, are sharing the gospel a lot, who invest discipling new believers, and who are starting churches that can reproduce. Now, that's the pattern. How do you get to that pattern? And And it takes a while. It takes a while to get there, and it takes a lot of focused effort to get to that place. So there are other ways to get there. Tent makers can get there, for instance, but it is so much easier and quicker if the person is able to focus most of their attention on developing these skills in this pattern of life. You mentioned a couple of things in describing what a full-time missionary is able to do more effectively. One thing you mentioned is language acquisition. You know, I've been around the world and worked with missionaries in different contexts, and I am always astounded at how inadequate I feel because I don't speak native language, and they do, and how significant that is. Uh, How difficult was language acquisition for you, (laughs) and uh, what's that process like for a missionary in those first few years? Well, uh, we worked on several languages, one of which we didn't have much time to study and didn't get very well. Uh, The second language, uh, we were five years into our mission service and we started learning a new language. And that was one of the most exciting things I've ever done in my life. I knew why I needed to learn that language, and I just got to be out with people every day, and I learned to laugh at myself when they laughed at me, (laughs) making mistakes, and um, and every every week learning a new way to get closer to being able to share the gospel with them. That is what drives you, and you're you're surrounded by these people that you're falling in love with, and you want them to know about Jesus. So that I mean, your heart is just pushing you to just keep studying. Uh, Later, I have to admit, in our 50s, we started learning another language, which I still understand a good bit, but it was a lot harder and a whole
whole lot slower in our 50s than it was in our 30s. Another issue that you mentioned in describing the role of the importance of the role of full-time missionaries was culture acquisition or inculturization. Uh, again, when I've traveled and worked with missionaries, I'm astounded at how they understand the cultural cues of where they're working and how uh, inadequate I feel in those moments. What's that process like for a missionary to learn how to work in a different culture and 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 how important that is to pick up on cultural cues and cultural nuances working with people in different settings? Well, that that's actually just goes hand in hand with the learning the language because I mean you can you should read whatever you can find about the culture and the country and those kinds of things, but you really find out what people believe and what they do by spending hours talking to them and listening to what they're saying. Sometimes taking notes if you need to, but you learn culture by talking to people. I think one of the problems we have in America is when we send someone from one section of the country to another without the language learning uh, era or phase in their ministry uh, because they just jump in the ministry maybe let's say I'm hey I'm a southerner from Mississippi to a place like Oregon without really understanding how people think and what their issues are, it's a real disadvantage to do that. So so language and culture going together is so, so important. That's interesting that you would make that comparison. When I moved from the Midwest to the Northwest to plant a church in 1989, one of the things I did was mispronounce a number of place names in the Portland, Oregon area uh, these were Native American words that had been borrowed and brought into the uh, vernacular, naming rivers and cities and things like that. And I, bo- I botched all of them and revealed very clearly that I was an outsider until I learned the language. And that was part of learning the culture and learning to fit into uh, where I was living. So I find that interesting that it works not only internationally, but I experienced the very same thing. Now, we talked about the importance of uh, full-time, fully-funded missionaries. But today, uh, there are a lot of alternative strategies that are being proposed. And I want to be clear that I personally feel that these alternative strategies have a contribution to make to the missions enterprise. And I know you share that same uh, perspective. But we don't think that these alternative strategies replace missionaries as the backbone of what we're doing all around the world. So let's talk about some of these alternative strategies and perhaps some of the strengths or some of the contribution they can make and maybe also some of the reasons why we don't think they fully replace having those missionaries out there in the field. Uh, One of the most common alternative strategies today is sending short-term teams to do mission work. Uh, What's your What's your perspective on the place of short-term teams and maybe the value they can have and, uh, and then maybe some of the limitations they have as well? Well, my first short-term mission team uh, was after I had served overseas for 30 years and came back to Gateway to take a team overseas. So, I mean, I was in learning mode to know how do you prepare a short-term team and what, I knew what we should do when we got there. Uh, because I had been a frontline missionary, I believe that if our students are going to learn about missions, they should be engaged with local people. If we have to find an English speaker or if we can use a translator, however, we, we could do that there. Uh, but they need to be talking to lost people. They need to be sharing the gospel. They need to get that experience because that's the heart of missions. That really is the heart. And you can go and do a lot of great things, especially if you're working with that team of long-term people 
that for me that's the most important thing because now you're stepping into a whole process of a strategy and you may not see that whole strategy but you're contributing in a way that the team has said we could use this right now um, let me just interject and say that i was with you on one of these short-term teams from gateway and one of the things i really admired about you and about the way our team approached the work was that we asked the missionaries who were in place in the country where we were going what do you need us to do and we went there and delivered that rather than us calling them and saying we're bringing our program to you or we're bringing our approach to you and <clears throat> superimposing it on your strategy we asked them what they wanted us to do and we went there and did it and i think that's such a such a significant distinctive about how to really be effective as a short-term team when a church sends people out to do the work to support what's being done not to go in and dictate what needs to be done Right, and, and you'll remember on that trip last summer, the first the first week we all were together in a mega city and we basically just did evangelism. And we saw a large number of people come to faith the very first time they heard the gospel. Well, that's always contributing to the kingdom wherever you go, whenever you can do that. And, and in that context, though, we went to the city they wanted us to go to. We, right. Oh, yeah. We went to the neighborhoods the locals took us to where they had been cultivating people with the, right. for the gospel. And they accompanied us so that they could not only translate for us uh, language translation when necessary, but also they went with us so they could help us culturally to not make mistakes that would, inhib that would limit our sharing the gospel. So this was a a wonderful example of what we're talking about, what you led us to do and how the team was put together. I, I just know that there are many people listening to the podcast today who are in churches that are sending out short-term teams, and maybe even some of them and our uh, listeners are going on these short-term teams. And what I would say as strongly as I can possibly say is this, go to support what's being done on the field, not to take uh, ownership of or to dictate or to try to control what's going on on the field. If you do that, you can have a really effective short-term missions experience in helping missionaries around the world. Right, and we, and we took advantage of uh, decades of relationships with local partners. Uh, that, I mean, those are intensive relationships. We, we didn't have those relationships because we were just there for a week or so. But uh, the missionaries that were helping facilitate that trip have been investing in these local partners, and there's a deep level of trust, and there's a common understanding of what the mission of God's all about. So that that's a really great place to go, and we always look for those kinds of places when we take our students, because I want our students to actually taste what missions is supposed to be, and that's as, about as close as we can get on a short-term trip. That's excellent. Another alternative <clears throat> strategy people talk a good, be, a good bit about today is not sending missionaries, but simply paying nationals uh, to do the work. Now, missionaries uh, that we send out train national leaders. Uh, they shape them, they motivate them, they partner with them. But what's wrong with the strategy of just not sending missionaries, but just finding some Christian leaders in other countries and just sending them money and supporting them financially and helping them to do the work by that means? A number of years ago, we were in Singapore, and a wealthy businessman in our Chinese church came to me, and he said, I hear right across over there in Indonesia, there are pastors that are making maybe less than $20 a month. And he said, what do you think if I just support 20 or 30 of them with my tithe? He said, I can, I can support all those pastors. And I, and I asked him this question. I said, what do you think the average income is for the rest of the people in the church? And he'd never thought about that. I said, it's probably the level the pastor's receiving. 
said, so if you give them money, now they're the wealthiest person in the church. Is that really what you want the pastor to be? Because now when they need something, they're going to come to him as their financial patron. And he's sort of obligated to be the money distributor. And now you completely change the spiritual relationship that that pastor has. I, I also asked him, the next question I asked him is, so what if, if in a week or two, some uh, multi-billionaire Korean Christian businessman comes and visits our church and after the sermon says, this is a wonderful pastor. We just love and admire this pastor. I'm going to start giving him a quarter of a million dollars a year because I just admire him so much. I said, how would you feel about that? He immediately started turning red and said, that's our pastor. Who do they think they are trying to support our pastor? That's what we do. I said, exactly. So, so giving money, especially long distance without an ongoing relationship is extremely dangerous. You're usually stealing somebody's sheep and probably somebody's shepherd. And now they're working for you. And it, it, especially if there's a big difference in the economic level of the giver from the recipients, now you've just told that church it's a waste of time for them to give sacrificially to support the ministry of their church. And you've just undermined the whole nature of what the church is supposed to be about. That's such a good perspective, Don. I know that many Americans who have you know significant resources think that just out of compassion, uh, they should do these things that we're describing, but actually they're undermining the work in ways they never imagined. There are ways to give and to give generously and to give sacrificially to support missions, and American Christians should be doing that. But giving the money directly uh, and inflating or changing the economic realities in a different context is not always the best mission strategy. Well, another common thing we hear today is um, we need to replace missionaries with um, people who simply move overseas and get jobs in other locations and, and do, their, do, the, do the mission uh, that way. Now, I certainly want American Christians who work internationally to be active in sharing the gospel and doing the work of missions wherever they go. But from my perspective, uh, the reason that companies and governments send people internationally is so that they'll work 60 to 80 hours a week in those locations. That's exactly uh, right. Building their, uh, building their company or whatever. I talked with a person recently who is in one of these roles, and he said, the people our company sends overseas are the most high-performance people we have. Yes, if they're Christians, they have a responsibility to devote some time to the mission, but the reason they're sent is because our company is expecting so much from them or our government is expecting so much from them. So how do you see uh, people like this augmenting the work of missions or supporting the work of missions without replacing the missionary in the field? Yeah, I think the this idea of expatriates uh, being missionaries, they should be a witness. I mean, we're all called to be a witness, and they can be a witness in their business. But you're right, uh, most expatriates, and I've known maybe thousands, certainly hundreds and hundreds of them. Ann and I, our first year overseas, worked in an international church filled with these people. Some of them are wonderful, godly people who want to serve the Lord and are doing, doing all that they can. But like you said, the fact is, if they work for an American company, they are making big bucks, and the, especially on the primary uh, income earner, the 
60 to 80 hours is is pretty close to probably what they're expected to do. There are Americans who get jobs for local companies in other countries. Well, guess what they're thinking? They're saying, wow, we brought in an American and we're paying him a lot of money to be here. They're going to do the same thing. You're going to work very long hours. So the hour issue is really important. Uh, tent making has worked. Paul was when, when he needed to be, though when he got support, he quit making tents so much. Kerry uh, was a tent maker, but both of those guys in their basically in their writings talk about the fact that they were basically working two jobs. They from before the sun comes up till way after the sun goes down, and most people are not really prepared either physically or spiritually or anything else to to work eighteen hour days. Uh, but yes, they can. They should be involved in a church overseas, and uh, it's probably going to be an international church because they probably only speak. English. Uh, they need to advocate for missions in that country through that church, and that church can actually be a big encouragement by their financial gifts uh, and other things. But but I would say the most important thing is as an American living in another culture, take every opportunity to talk about Jesus, and don't don't be hesitant. Talk about Jesus wherever they are. That's awesome. Well, we've talked about the role of fully funded full-time missionaries as being sort of the backbone of the missions enterprise, and we've discussed how these other strategies, short-term uh, training and helping nationals, sending uh, expatriates uh, to work in countries, all of these can augment and support the task. Now let's shift gears just a bit. Some of the podcast listeners are actually people who are considering or should be considering the possibility of serving internationally in a missionary context, and so... I want to talk about that. You have, in your role as a missions leader over the years, you have supervised dozens, if not hundreds, of young missionaries. And so you have a, a really good perspective on the kind of person that does well in that context. So let's talk about that. Uh, what kind of qualities does a good missionary have, or what kind of qualities would a podcast listener need to evaluate as they're thinking about a career in mission service? What would you be looking for in a young person that was committing, or not even just a young person, but a person who was thinking about missionary service? You know, it, it, Jeff, is is not a lot of the things that we normally think of, I think. You know, we're probably thinking, well, this should be somebody who's really outgoing and gregarious and someone who in a crowd of 100 people we all turn to and go, wow. Well, actually, what we're probably expressing there is are a lot of American cultural understandings of leadership or, or what an outstanding minister might be. Uh, I would say the biggest issue is passion and commitment. Mm. Um, it, it, I, I know missionaries who are extremely extroverted, who, uh, you know, they witness to every stump they walk by. I mean, mm -hmm. they just talk about Jesus all the time. But I also know some extremely effective missionaries who are more introverted, um, but they have deep relationships. You know, that's often the difference. Extroverts have lots of friends. There's just not many of them deep. And an introvert has fewer friends, but those can be extremely deep. So both of them, as long as they're applying their 
life, their time, their energy into this task of raising up disciples. And by the way, when Jesus said make disciples, he meant start with evangelism and end with church. Anything that doesn't include that is not really discipleship from, I think, from a, a New Testament perspective. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. yeah. I'm just going to say that's excellent. And so what you're saying is that a person of almost any personality can serve effectively as a missionary, that their passion and commitment really are more at the core than any particular personality trait or any particular kind of characteristic or character quality. Right. Now, when you worked with young missionaries who came to the field, uh, the reality is some of them didn't make it. They, they served for a year or two or three uh, and didn't come back to the mission field when their first term ended or maybe didn't even make it through the first one. Uh, what were some of the reasons why people just didn't, uh, uh, didn't fulfill what they really believed God wanted them to do, but it just really wasn't for them or didn't really work out the way they hoped? Well, to be honest, I think the number one issue that we saw was when they arrived, they were already only thinking about maybe this is a this is long-term project. We're going to try this for three or four years. And that's generally what happens if, if they make it to three or four years, if that's what they're, what they're thinking. Um, so when you do that, you know, it's like, it's, I mean, this is not like getting married, but in a way it is. It's like, oh, I'm going to try this relationship. We'll see how it works for a couple of years. And if it keeps going well and I'm happy, then maybe we'll just keep going. But, you know, this, again, we'll probably talk about call, but this is an issue about what do I sense God leading me to commit to as a vocation, a life calling. And that's, you know, that's a concept that we don't hear much in the church these days, except maybe for the pastor. But they come with a commitment, and then they just dive in. They just work at it. They take risks. I'm not talking about, you know, crazy risks, but they're out trying to talk to people and they're connecting. One, uh, a number of years ago, there were about 15 uh, field leaders from the IMB sitting in a room, and we were talking about places where we're seeing these great breakthroughs and lots of people coming to Christ and the work is just going amazingly well. And we started analyzing what were the qualities of uh, the, those teams and the people leading those teams. And we came up with two things, and they're so simple it shouldn't be a surprise, but we were all surprised because we had been thinking about all kinds of other leadership kinds of things. One is they were extremely bold in sharing their faith. Hmm. And that looks different from place to place. I mean, right. you know, uh, you could be in a crazy place where there's a war going on or Muslim violence or whatever, uh, what boldness looks like there is going to be different from a place you can get off the plane and preach, a, a, you know, a huge to, to thousands of people that afternoon. But wherever they were, they were really emphasizing that everyone should hear, and they were doing everything they could to make that happen. And the second thing was they were in love with and passionate about the place and the people and the culture, that you just you can't talk to them about that place without it starting to just exude out of them about what a wonderful place. And, you know, let's be honest, most mission places where missionaries serve are not the most beautiful or the most comfortable. You know, those places were the first ones evangelized in the 1800s. Now we're getting to places that are quite often harder. Uh, but, but the missionaries, 
I believe are experiencing God's love through them for those people in that place. And that comes through very clearly. That's awesome. I, I was, uh, as I was listening to you, I was thinking about so many examples that I've experienced here at the seminary of those very things where people have a strong sense of call, a boldness about the gospel, a passion for where they are. I think about visiting one of our Gateway graduates who is serving in an international place and uh, they had described it to me as the most beautiful place in the world, the greatest place they'd ever want, I'd ever want to visit, the nicest people. I went there and I thought, you're kidding me, right? <laughs> but this very effective missionary thought they lived in the greatest place in the world. Because and it's the, where God said to be. And the people they were working with were the greatest people in the world. And, and I, I was uh, humbled and inspired by that kind of passion and that kind of commitment. Well, we've talked about missionaries and we've talked about what it might mean to serve as a missionary. Let's bring it down to where a lot of other podcast listeners are, and that is how can local churches in the United States focus more on missions? Because quite frankly, uh, it's a small percentage of people that are going to go internationally as fully funded missionaries and spend the rest of their lives on a mission field. We know that. The most uh, America, of American Christians are going to remain in their churches and all of that. We get that. So what can pastors and church leaders do to facilitate more of a missions focus in the churches of the Southern Baptist Convention? I actually got to work with several churches who came to us while we were overseas and said, this is what we want to this is what we want to do. We want to turn our church from being a church that rarely thinks about missions to being a really missions-focused, passionate church. And I got, I got to actually see that process take place, and it's amazing. I say the first thing is if you want the whole church really to buy into this, the pastor has to have it in his heart. It, he needs to be preaching about the nations, and he needs to be involved in some way. Uh, and if he's not, then the, there will be maybe groups of people in the church that will pick it up, but the whole church never will. Uh, I, I know two churches that were so concerned about their pastor's passion for the nations that they started. He, for instance, in one church, he was preaching on why we should give, and they were trying to raise half a million dollars that day for missions. <clears throat> and his, they knew that his commitment was he was just going to preach more passionately and more passionately and more passionately about the nations until they gave. And I heard the deacons talking and said, we're going to give it in this first service because we're afraid he's going to have a heart attack. <laughs> <clears throat> I mean, that's really that really happened. Yeah. I was re and you could just see his passion. Right. And they they bought in just because they love their pastor. Right. Uh, in another one, I saw a pastor who said, I'm going to go. I want our church to go. And so I'm personally going to go a couple of times a year. And he was at the time seemed really old, but about my age now, I'm 60s. And they, the, a lot of the younger church members who saw him sort of the, as the grandfather of, the, of, the whole, of all their families, they were so concerned about him going. They said, we're going to go with him. He's not going on that trip. We're going to go by himself. We're, go, we're all going to go with him because we want to be there. We want to make sure he's okay. He's getting his rest, whatever. So actually the personal relationship of the pastor pulled the church into this passion. The second thing, though, is that a pastor can't be uh, the only one or even the primary one doing this. It's really great if there's a staff member or very successfully, many churches find a couple of champions, 
and you get a couple of champions who believe in this and start leading, for instance, they're trained to lead a missions team every year and those kinds of things, then they're the ones who are talking to all the members of the church about missions and why they should why they should go and why they should give. Those really make a big difference. There's something, though, that I'm surprised that most churches don't seem to pick up on, is that if you have partnerships with missionaries, with with the technology that we have today, you can bring those missionaries into the worship service on Sunday morning so people who've never met them or talked to them get to hear from them and realize, hey, they're sitting on the other side of the world right now, and we're hearing about something God did this week. That really brings it to to life for the average American, I think, and so many great things we can do. Well, you've highlighted some key aspects. First, pastor has to take the lead. Second, pastoral passion has to be demonstrated in preaching and teaching and uh, elevating the cause of missions in a church. And then you said third, uh, there need to be some champions. Uh, Some churches might have a staff person, but most churches will have lay leaders who will be champions for missions, who will talk about giving and going and praying for missions and missionaries. And then you mentioned another aspect, and that is information. And in today's age, where it's so technologically uh, simple, really, to connect missionaries to churches, uh, there's uh, really no expense involved and not much difficulty involved in making these kind of relationships happen. So all of these kinds of things can work together to bring a greater mission focus to the church. Well, let's wrap it up with just a word about the missions conference that's coming. Um, The conference is uh, this weekend, Friday and Saturday. Uh, We're featuring uh, a focus on different urban ministry models from five major cities of the world. Uh, The cost is $20, but that includes two meals, so that's really what you're being asked to pay. And I don't think students at Gateway have to pay at all, do they? Uh, I think we're going to charge them 10. Oh, they are charging them 10. Well, they got to pay for one meal, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, uh, the cost is small. You can get there by, uh, you can register by going to our website, gs.edu, and just clicking through to the registration link and taking care of that there. Uh, Let me close by saying this. Uh, A few years ago, I needed a leader to come and teach people here at Gateway how to be missionaries and how to make missions a focus of what we do in our churches. And I found Don and Ann Dent uh, serving have for 30 years in an international context with the academic credentials and the preparation they needed to come to a place like ours. But I honestly had to almost talk them into coming. I remember the first interview Don came. He he, he came because I guess he was somewhat interested, but it was kind of obvious to me that he was a, a, a little bit reluctant to even be talking to me. And the reason was because he had a passion for missions. And I was trying to help him see how that passion could be communicated to a new generation of missionary leaders. And he finally agreed with that and that God was leading him to do that. And he and his wife, Ann, came to Gateway and have been leading us now these several years. But that was a good day for our school when they came because we have uh, teaching missions here, someone who has given his life for missions and now is giving his life uh, for the creation of new missionaries and a new missionary task force, a new missionary movement that's gonna go out and make sure that we have the staffing we need all around the world for the next generation. So Don, thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you for coming to Gateway and thank you for doing uh, what you do for the cause of Christ. Hey, listen, if you're out there thinking about missions today, and God is calling you, say yes to Him. If you're in a church that needs to bring more focus to missions, do it. These are important aspects of our responsibility as we lead on.